0: Well, as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, one of the truths that we've seen Luke hammering home over and over is that Jesus Christ was fully God and was fully man. As we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 4, what we're going to find is that uh, this this same truth, these two truths come together, and there's a tension and a mystery with them. Uh, Because when we read that Jesus Christ was tempted, it brings up a difficult but pertinent question. And that question is, could Jesus Christ have sinned? Now, I'll tell you that I was tempted to pass over this question this morning, because I know that going into this, there's a danger that your eyes are going to glaze over. But because you've had an extra hour of sleep this morning, I think you're well equipped for what we're going to be looking at this morning. And and I'll tell you why I'm, I'm willing to run the risk of going deep this morning in this. First of all, the Bible exhorts us that we're not just to to have the milk of the word, but we're to have the meat. We're to, to know the, the deep truths of Scripture. And Luke has been telling us those things. And second, by understanding who Jesus fully is and what was happening, it will help us in those times that we ourselves are tempted. Temptation is something most of us deal with on a daily basis as we deal with the devil and tackle temptation in our life. And because of that, it's such a big question. We're not just going to talk about it this morning. This morning we're going to lay the the foundation for this and we're going to come back again next week and we're going to look at some practical ways that we can fight our foe, the devil. Now that doesn't mean there's not going to be some practical application this morning, there is. But next week we're going to come back and have the cookies on the bottom shelf and we're going to see some concrete steps we can take as we deal with temptation in our own life this morning. So dealing with this question, it it comes down to, sometimes people say, Roger, I like to know the theological words behind what we're talking about. So what we're dealing with this morning is is impeccability versus peccability. And let me define these terms for you. Impeccability says that being fully God, Jesus could not have sinned. Jesus could not have sinned. Now, uh, peccability says that being fully man, Jesus could have sinned, but he did not. Now, I'll tell you that I personally fall into the first camp. Being fully God, Jesus could not have sinned. Now, here's a spoiler alert. Whichever position you take, Jesus Christ did not sin. So maybe you're saying, well, if that's the case, Roger, isn't this question a little bit like uh, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Why, why are we even talking about it? Well, I've already told you the reasons. We need to understand the full foundation of who he is. Now, I said Jesus Christ never sinned. And the scriptures are full of passages that tell us that. First Peter 2.22 says, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. First John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now this is where the question comes up for us this morning. Because if Jesus could not have sinned, then did he really experience temptation? And thus, is he therefore truly able to understand and help us when we face those things? Now, the question at all levels, the answer to all three of these levels of question is yes. Yes, at all levels. Jesus uh, could not have sinned, as I said. Then he, Did he really experience temptation? We're going to see these temptations were real. And therefore, is he truly able to understand and help us when we face those things? And again, the answer is yes. Think about your own life this morning. There are times that you have not personally experienced something And it doesn't mean you don't fully understand it. Uh, Each of us has, has an understanding of things we haven't personally experienced. And we don't even have the benefit that God does of being omniscient, which means that he knows everything about everything. You don't personally have to experience the destructive effects of sin to know it's not a good thing to do. It's not worth doing. But Jesus Christ, while he never sinned, he experienced the destructive effects of sin. Because he came and he died to save us. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God the Father made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the doctrine of imputation. Last week Michael talked about the doctrine of imputation. And you'll remember a summary definition we can use is that it's a supernatural uh, transaction where our sin is given to Jesus on the cross. And his righteousness is credited to our account. Now when it comes to the doctrine of imputation, it's not only what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's what sin does, the sin nature we have. If you read Romans chapter 5, you'll find where Adam, the first man, Adam, Adam and Eve who were created in the Garden of Eden, they sinned. And as you read Romans 5, it tells you that we are sinners not only because we ourselves commit acts of sin, but also because Adam's sin corrupted the whole human race. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's not fair, Roger, because uh, I'm guilty for what he did. Well, if any one of us were in the Garden of Eden, take any man or woman living today and say, you were the first one, you would have sinned because you've done it in your life. Remember, Romans 5 says we're sinners because we sin, as well as because of the corruption. This is why Luke spent so much time early on in this gospel talking about the miraculous conception and the virgin birth. Because after Adam sinned, his only, he and his descendants could only beget sinners. Now, there's a theologian who can help us here. And I want you just to think this through because it's kind of deep. Uh, it says, th- th- this guy is Dr. Stephen Wellham, and he says, at that critical moment of conception, when God the Son entered into the unfertilized egg of Mary, she was prevented by the Spirit of God from passing to the living fetus, her sin nature. The virgin conception, pregnancy, and birth manifested a sacred, sanctified mystery. No man knows all that happened in that historic moment, but the fact that Jesus Christ possessed two natures, human human and divine apart from sin. This is why Hebrews 4.15 tells us Jesus Christ is without sin. This describes not just his actions, but also his very nature. Because if, if he had a sin nature, that would be part of his character, and we could not say that God is without sin. But Jesus Christ is without sin. And it's why we read in Hebrews 7.26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, Innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above. Now, there's a side note I need to mention here. Because some people have a misconception that being tempted equals sin. Now, we've already seen uh, that Jesus Christ was sinless. And what happens here is people will say, well, you, you know, in Matthew 5:28. Uh, Jesus said, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the flawed reasoning that I hear from people is, well, Roger, because I've already sinned because of this temptation, well, I I might as well go all the way in. I I might as well get the full benefit of being bad. Friends, if that's the way you're thinking, I want you to read Romans 6, 1 through 2. Because there the Apostle Paul tells us, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So here's the thing. First of all, if you think you've already fallen into sin with a temptation, let me just ride that part of the the reason for a moment, it doesn't mean you go deeper into the sin. What you do, rather, is you repent. Repent, you'll remember, is, is where we recognize we're going, on the wrong, we're going the wrong direction. We're on the wrong road. And what it is is we have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Repentance says we recognize we're going the wrong way and we stop. And we literally do a 180. We turn around and we go back in the other direction. So if we're walking away from fellowship with God at the cross, what it says is we recognize we need to stop, quit going toward our sin, turn around, and come to him. Or if you're somebody who's never come to faith in Christ in the first place, you recognize you're lost, you're on the the broad road of destruction as the Bible describes it, and you turn and you come to faith in Christ, you come to the cross where God offers you forgiveness and salvation. Now, if there's a guy or a girl out there in your, your world that makes you stumble, uh, what the Bible says is you don't, you don't linger. You don't keep looking. You don't keep getting around. What you do is the Bible says you flee, you flee from temptation. It's this idea of repentance. Again, you stop, you turn around and you run, you get out of there. There's a saying that you can't keep the birds of the air from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair, Right? I mean, there are going to be times you're going to be out, and, and there's going to be a, a situation where somebody walks in front of you, or something flashes on a screen, and you're going, oh my goodness, I didn't anticipate that, and your mind starts to go somewhere. Well, what you don't do is sit down and linger and look and click more, or, or you know, and, and let the birds begin to build a nest in your hair. You get out of there. Now, Second, coming back to this question of whether temptation is a sin, I've already told you that Jesus Christ was tempted, and yet we've established that he is one who never sinned. So if temptation equals sin, then Jesus sinned, but he didn't. So temptation itself is not a sin. Now at this moment, some of you are saying, well, this is deep, and I think I'm lost. So let me take you back to the original question we're looking at. If Jesus didn't have, since Jesus didn't have a sin nature, was he really tempted? I want you to think back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were there in the garden, the scriptures say they were created in perfection, they were in fellowship with God, they were walking along. Sin had not yet entered the world. They did not have a sin nature at the moment that Satan shows up and begins to tempt them. Did they fall into sin? Yes. Yes. So were they truly tempted even without a sin nature? Yes. And so the fact that Jesus Christ does not have a sin nature doesn't mean that the the temptations were not legitimate. Satan had had success in the past. And as we look now at Luke chapter 4, we see that he comes back for an encore because he tries to tempt Jesus. So look with me at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And Satan led Jesus up, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you just worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And he led him to Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, "'If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone.' And Jesus answered and said to him, "'It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test.'" Now, if you've looked at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, you know that there's a parallel account there. The same encounter, the same temptation with Satan is listed there. Except that in Matthew's account, the last two temptations are in a different order. Now, if I had to choose which one was chronological, I'd go with Matthew's account because he has a time marker where he says, then, and then he tells us about the the second temptation that comes. So, why does Luke have a different order here? Well, I don't know. But what I do know is it matches something else that we find in the Bible. And that's in 1 John 2.16. There it says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So in terms of the temptations that all of us face in life, they're all found right here in this one passage. And as we look at the temptations that are recorded for us here, they, they are found here in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, Jesus had a fleshly desire, hunger, turned these stones into bread. The lust of the eyes, he was taken and, and offered the kingdoms of the world, the glory, the power. The boastful pride of life, he was told, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and you'll be acclaimed and received as the Messiah. And so when it says in Hebrews that Jesus is is tempted as we are in all things, Jesus Christ may not have the exact same details of temptation that you and I face in our individual lives, but Jesus has faced every temptation that you and I have faced. You can think about everything in your life, and it will fit into one of those three categories there. Now, as I said, Jesus' temptations are not exactly like ours. If Satan were to show up here this morning, and he were to hold out to me a rock, and he were to say, Roger, I know you're hungry, so turn this rock into bread. (laughs) That's not a temptation. I can can turn bread into rocks, but I, I can't... I can't turn a rock into bread. So it's not a temptation for me because I don't have that ability. But when he showed up and he said to Jesus, here's here's a temptation. Jesus had the power to do it. As you read in your Bible, Satan comes and he says, if you are the son of God. Now, you may read that and think, well, that's a a question. He's, He's saying, Jesus, are you the son of God? But if you look at the text in the original Greek language, there's, there's something in Greek grammar called first, second, and third class conditions. And it's based upon the construction of not only the, the word order, but the types of, of words that are used in, in the, the tenses and things. And what we find there is what's called a first class condition. And the, the bottom line of that is it means that it is a statement that is assumed to be true. It is a statement of fact. And you can literally translate when he says, if you are the son of God, you can translate that passage legitimately, since you are the son of God. And he's going to repeat that later here in Luke. He's going to say, since you are the son of God a second time. And we see that he's stating that because Satan would not offer a temptation that was not real to Jesus. He says, because you are God and have the power to turn rocks into bread, because you are the son of God, the angels will have a charge over you. These are legitimate temptations. Now, as we're looking at those of Christ, how do they apply to us? Because the details are different. You're not tempted by turning rocks into bread. But what we find is, while the details are different, there is a a core thing that is common with us. In this case, it's taking the easy way out rather than trusting God. It's taking the easy way out rather than trusting God. He says, Jesus, since you're the Son of God and you're hungry, and you have the ability to meet your need by turning this, this rock into bread, why don't you do it? And, and what Satan's doing is he's goading Jesus here because he's, he's going even deeper. What he's doing is literally questioning the goodness of God the Father. He's saying, well, you're the only begotten son. You're supposed to be his beloved son, and yet your daddy's not taking care of you. I mean, you're out here, you're hungry, you're, you're, you're starving. You're and, and what he's saying is, um, you know, maybe you should just take care of things on your own because God's falling down on the job for you. Your father isn't doing it. You know, another way that Satan attacks us is he gets us to play the comparison game. Have you ever been happy with your car until a friend or a neighbor shows up with a brand new car? And suddenly you're going, hmm, I think I need a new car. Or or somebody walks in with a new outfit or a a new purse or or some new PlayStation, and and you're suddenly going, well, the one I had isn't good enough anymore. I need a new one. And so we get into this comparison game. How many days was Jesus without food? It's right there in the text. How many days? Forty. Have you ever heard the number 40 related uh, throughout the Scripture to, to food? How about the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness? Now well, Let me tell you why there's a connection between what we're looking at and that. Uh, at one level, you're going to see it because the verses Jesus uses to combat Satan are all tied back to the 40 years that Israel is wandering in the wilderness. And the second is when, when Israel was wandering around in the wilderness and they were saying, we're out here starving, what did, what did God provide for them to feed them? Manna. Manna is a word that literally means, what is it? You know, they walked out of their tents one morning, and there was this light, flaky bread. And, and it, it was described as having this, this, this sweet taste, this amazing texture. It was this miraculous bread. And as they picked it up and they ate it, they said, man, uh, whoa, what is it? This is good. And, and so that's what, you know, Jesus, Satan is saying, you're the son of God. You're the beloved son. And yet your daddy fed millions of people for 40 years. In the wilderness, but, hmm, guess he's forgotten about you, Jesus. Or maybe he's so busy taking care of everybody else that, that your needs are going unmet. And, you know, since God's not stepping in and doing what he needs to do, it's, it's up to you to, to take over. Have you ever had that temptation in your own life? Have you ever been looking around and saying, well, everybody else is being taken care of by God and I'm not, or these things are happy in my life and God's fallen down on the job, he's forgotten about me, so I guess I need to just take over. I guess I need to be the one to handle this. And we begin to question, does God even care for us? And the way that Jesus fights back here is he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And there, this is where Moses had commanded, had, had reminded the people of the manna that God had given them in the wilderness. Now, when God gave them the manna, remember, they had to go out and get it. They had to get up each morning. They had to go out and they had to gather the manna. God gave very specific instructions. Every morning, go out get what you need. Only take what you need for that day except when the Sabbath or other things are coming and then you can have two days' worth. But some of the people said, hey, I'm going I'm to work you know, real hard one day and I'm not going to work the rest of the time. And they gathered up extra manna. You remember what happened to that stuff? Got all moldy, started having worms. God said, I told you, how to do things. You not only have to believe me, but you have to act on what I've told you. You need to be obedient. And so when it comes to this, they they had to believe God's word and, and trust their existence to him. They had to act on it, believe it. And he calls on us to do the same thing. Have you ever had times you've read something in the Bible and you've gone, That's that's kind of counterintuitive. It's almost like when you're going into a skid and you're told to turn into it and you're thinking, no, I need to, you know, sometimes things that we're called to do don't make a lot of sense to us, but it's the way they need to happen. It's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us to lean not on your, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Jesus knew that God had a plan, and it wasn't for him to die of hunger in the wilderness. As Satan is saying at 40 days, people who have studied starvation say your body is starting to consume itself at 40 days. There's a point where you are so hungry that you stop being hungry. But then as you pass another mark and your body starts to consume itself, the hunger comes back with a vengeance. And Jesus is in this point. He's in this time of desperation. And, and Satan is telling him, you're going to die. God's forgotten you. You're out here on your own. You're going you're to die if you don't do something. And what Jesus says is, I know God and I know his plan. And his plan is not for me to die in the wilderness. His plan was for me to come and die on a cross. Now this leads into the second temptation because Satan was trying to thwart the plan of God and he offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would just worship Satan. When it says to worship, the the Greek word literally means to take a knee. And what Satan said is, Jesus, if you will just get down on your knee and for one instance acknowledge and worship me, then I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. If you go back to Isaiah 14, 13 through 14, you see the original sin of Satan was that. He said, I want to exalt myself above God. I want to take the place of God. I want my throne to be above his. I want to be worshiped as God. And he's been after that ever since. And so he comes to Jesus and he, he, he says, let's make a deal here. I told you these temptations are real. And if Satan were offering something that Jesus knew he could not give, it wouldn't be a real temptation. But the scripture is clear that Satan could have given the kingdoms at that moment. As you read John 12:31 and John 14:30, Satan is called the ruler of the world. God has given him a certain amount of delegated authority for a period of time. And Satan can give that authority over to others. You can read Revelation 13 and see how he will give Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the, the rulership for a period of time. And what Satan says to Jesus is, the kingdoms of the world I will give to you. And the temptation here, as I said, the the details are different for you and I, but the core of the temptation here is you can avoid all the pain of the path that God has set before you. There is a shortcut to grab the glory without having to go through any of the pain. God's plan said there is the cross before the crown. And Satan offers a shortcut. He says you don't have to go through that. See, the Bible is clear that Jesus would one day have all the kingdoms of the world under his authority. God the Father had promised that. You can see it in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. There God says, I will surely tell of the decrees of the Lord. The prophet is speaking this. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. But before he would receive these things, he would have to suffer and die he would go through the gore and the death and the suffering before the glory came luke will tell us later in chapter 24 verse 26 was it not necessary for the christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory god's plan put the cross before the crown but he says there is a shortcut to avoid this have you ever been tempted in that way in your own life Have you ever looked at uh, all the pain of the path you have to go through, the things you have to do, and and if somebody offered you a shortcut, is that a temptation? As Jesus was given this temptation, he he responds by quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13. And in Deuteronomy 6.13, Moses warned the people that as God said, I'm giving you the land and you're going to go into it. You're going to have glory and dominion. You're going to take over this area. And Moses said, you, you, the danger you're facing is you're going to forget God. You're going to forget who he is and what he did for you. And you're going to start to look at yourselves and you're going to glorify yourselves. And the temptation that Satan was offering to Jesus is forget God. Forget his plan. You can have the glory without going through uh, the suffering. Now, as I said, there are times that that Satan tempts us by saying there's a shortcut. And you can have it without all the pain. How many of you have ever been tempted to cheat in school? You don't have to stay up all night. You don't have to study. You don't have to cram for that exam. You don't have to put in the work taking notes and reading books and doing all that. I mean, here, here's an ability to have the shortcut and get the grade without all the work. Athletes all the time are, are offered, you know, some type of a steroid or other banned substance where they say, look, you don't have to put in all the, the discipline and the workout and, and the pain and push through things when, when here's something that will give you that edge and take you up a level and, and allow you to beat the competition. Men and women in business are told, you know, if you'll cut this corner, if you'll cook this book, if you'll, you know, uh, not quite have so much integrity in this deal, if you'll, if you'll just do a few things, you'll get that promotion, you'll have a fatter paycheck, you'll, you'll be more successful in business. These are the temptations that are at the core of what Satan is offering to Jesus here. And by doing these things, you may get the short-term reward here on earth, but it's going to rob you of the eternal rewards in heaven. The perfect son of God had to hang on a tree before he could, could have the throne. And he calls on us as his followers to not take the shortcut that Satan offers. Later in Luke nine twenty three through 25 Jesus Christ will tell us, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Satan said, look, take the temporary path, the easy way, the shortcut. But it would have removed the eternal reason Jesus Christ came, which was to go to the cross to save you and me from our sins. The last temptation in verses 9 through 12 is is another attempt to get Jesus to take the shortcut. He says you don't have to be the suffering servant. Read Isaiah chapter 52 and and Isaiah 53 where Jesus' crucifixion is described in, in detail as to what he would go through. He says you don't have to be the suffering servant to be acclaimed as the Son of God, the Messiah. He says here's the shortcut. Here's the easy way, Jesus. Let's go up here. He takes them to the temple. They, they go up to the highest pinnacle. This is probably the, the southeastern corner of the temple. You see in your bulletin, we're, we're going to be taking a trip to Israel next summer. And we'll go to Jerusalem, and you can look and see this. And, and so he says, come right up here and that southeastern corner overlooks the Kidron Valley. There's a 600-foot drop. And, and he says, take a swan dive, Jesus. Just get up here and let the people see you. And as you're going over the edge and as you're, you're hurtling toward the earth, the angels are going to come in and they're going to swoop in and they're going to save you. And you're going to land light as a feather and everybody's going to go, this is the promised one. He says, you don't, you don't have to go through the pain of the cross, Jesus, to be acclaimed as the one. Take the shortcut. And Satan even quotes from Psalm 91, 11 through 12. He says, hey, I'm just being biblical. But Satan really wasn't being biblical. I said we're going to come back next week and look at how he works and how he twists the scripture and things. And this is what he's doing here. Because as you read Psalm ninety-one eleven through 12, you're going to see he leaves out just a few words. In the psalm it says, in all your ways. Now the promise there is related to God's ways, not our ways. Not the way we want it to be. You see, when God has a promise, he says, this is how I will act. This is how things will happen. When you are obedient and you follow me, these are the things that I will do. And, and sometimes what people do is they, they, they pick and choose passages. They'll cut and paste verses together. They'll isolate a passage from the context and, or from the total revelation of Scripture. And, you know, if you do that, you can make the Bible say anything. Did you know that? I mean, I can, I can paste scriptures together to justify anything. And this is where the name it and claim it people come in. They say, oh, well, the Bible says such and such. And they ignore the context. Or they ignore the things that are tied to it. And, and, you know, the Bible tells us that if we ask anything in Jesus' name, then we'll have it, right? So what we say is, well, God's this genie contained in the Bible. And we just kind of point to a passage and we go, in Jesus' name, I claim it. And 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 all of a sudden it's yours. Right. Didn't know I could do that. Right. And I don't do that because that's garbage. That's wrong. And so what happens is th- that's what we do. And, and we think we can obligate Jesus. We think we can obligate Satan. And th- I mean, God, the father, this is what Satan's doing. He's playing this game of smoke and mirrors. He's taking the scripture, he's, he's taking a little bit of truth, but then he's turning it and he's saying, well, see, this is, this is how it works. And Jesus, if you'll do what I want you to do here, and how does Jesus counter it? Well, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16. And if you read Deuteronomy 6.16, you'll see that it refers to Exodus chapter 17. And what's happening in Exodus chapter 17 is we're again back with Israel during the wandering in the wilderness. And when they're out there, this time they're not complaining about what are we going to eat. But in that particular passage, they're complaining about what are we going to drink. They're saying, oh, we're out here in the desert. There's no water. Once again, grumble, grumble. God brought us out here to die. He's forgotten about us. He's not with us. And you scratch your head and go, there's a pillar of fire and a cloud leading you. There's food showing up every morning. You're going, where's God? Do we ever do that? Do we ever forget where God is when when all the things he's revealed himself? Romans tells us the creation itself speaks of God. And we go, well, where is God? And so the the problem with Israel is they were saying, where is God? He's not here to help us. He hasn't shown up. and, And God shows up. He provides the water. But then Moses tells the people, hey, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And this is what Jesus is referring to when he quotes from Deuteronomy. Satan has just said, here's a test, Jesus. You're, since you're the son of God, throw yourself off, the, and the, the angels are going to come in. And, and Jesus says, we don't need to test God. We're not supposed to test God. And one of the ways, again, the details are different for us, but how many times do we test God? How many times do we say we're going we're to pressure him to, to give us his protection or his provision? And, and we paint God into this little corner. Again, we have our Bible and we say, well, here's a promise. And so God's got to act upon that promise. So it doesn't matter what I do. Let me explain it this way. Many of you know i had been a policeman in Dallas. And when I was a cop in Dallas, one one of the things that would happen on a regular basis is there would be police officers killed. Sadly, Dallas leads the nation in, in officers killed on multiple years. And when I was there working, there were a couple of times that we had more officers killed in Dallas than any other place in the entire nation. And because of that, people would come up to me. Remember, I was. I was going through seminary, working my way through seminary as a police officer. And I'm, I'm at a church in Dallas, and my wife is there. And, and there would be people, when there would be one of these runs of officers being killed, people would come up to us and they'd go, aren't you scared? They'd say to Kim, aren't you worried that one day Roger's going to get killed? They'd say to me, Don't, aren't you afraid of getting killed in the line of duty? Now, what I would respond to people is, the Bible tells me, that our days are numbered. God is clear that He has ordained our days for us. The scripture says, uh, Jesus says, I go ahead to prepare a room for you, in my father's house are many rooms in the and, and he says, I'm not going to come get you till your room is ready. So the Bible has a promise, a truth, that my days are numbered just as yours are. And so what I would tell people is, listen, I can die in my sleep at home as much as I can be shot in the line of duty. Now, because I knew that truth, did it mean I went to work and I acted like a mad dog? That I ran around and took all kinds of risks? That I was like Wonder Woman, crashing through doors and bullets were flying, and I wasn't worried about it because they weren't going to touch me. And if they did, well, then it was my day, and I would have died eating a water burger as much as I, you know, would have been shot at work. Is that how I lived? No. I didn't presume upon God. I didn't say, God, because you have this promise for me, then it doesn't matter how I live my life. I took every precaution I could. I did not put my uniform on a single time without putting on a bulletproof vest. And if you've ever worn one of those, soldiers know those flak jackets, how heavy and hot they are. And there were many times that it was over 100 degrees, and I'm putting on this turtle shell, and I'm going, I'm hot, and I'm sweating. But, you know, bullets were hotter than that vest was, so I wore it. I didn't presume upon the protection of God. I didn't say I'm going to write a check and make you cash it because your, your word says this truth. And we shouldn't do it either. And maybe you're saying, well, Roger, I've never been in the military. I've never been a police officer. So that's a nice story, but it doesn't apply to me. Well, you know how I hear this applied as well? There are people who will refer to something like Matthew 6.26. It says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not worth much more? Are you not worth much more than they? And so people will say, well, I can just sit back. I don't have to worry about eating uh, you know, and working because the Bible says God's going to provide for me. And, and I'll say to people like this, I'll say, you know, the birds of the air, that's a great point. God does feed them. But does he throw their food in their nests? Or does he provide it? And they have to go out and work for it and gather it and get it. And, and we just talked about not cutting and pasting scriptures and pulling out what we want. We have to look at the totality of of what God reveals. So related to this, 2 Thessalonians 3:10 through 13 says, "For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread." Now, there are plenty of people who are looking for work that are trying hard, that have lost jobs and things. I'm not saying that if you're without work because you're trying to, that you shouldn't eat. You know that our church supports people in need like that. The book of Acts tells us that we as brothers and sisters, those who had were selling what they had to help those who were in need. What I'm talking about are the people who are sitting back and and pushing God into a corner and saying, well, you said you're going to do this, so you're obligated. God is not our genie that we rub the Bible and say, do it my way. God says, I've given you ways, and you're to obey them and walk in them. And in this last temptation, Satan is saying, push God into a corner. Make him show up. And not only was the test wrong, but Jesus says, look, I already know the answer to this. In fact, you already know the answer to this, Satan. I want you to look back at Luke 4.1. Do you remember how this whole passage began? It said that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. There is God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. And being fully man, Jesus was indwelled by the presence of the Spirit. The Spirit is given to help us. And if you're sitting there saying, where is God? Why is he not helping me? The question first and foremost is, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Because when we come to faith in the Lord, the Bible says that we are then given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are sealed and indwelled by Him. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? And when you face our enemy, Satan, the tempter, 1 John 4.4 4 tells us, Greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, Satan, the ruler of the world. And so if you're saying, Where is God when Satan is saying, Snap your fingers and make them show up. Jesus says, I'm not going to test God the Father. And he's already here and he's already helping me. And at that moment, Satan saw he lost and it says he left. But then Luke 4.13 says, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So this is like a bad Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, right? He says, I'm going to be back. And some of you are saying, you know, I'm doing okay, Roger. I've defeated the enemy. I fought the foe. Things are good right now. But he will be back. And he will be back in times like we see with Jesus. He seeks opportune times. When did he test Jesus with hunger? When Jesus was tired and worn out and and hungry. And he says, well, here's my opportunity. The Bible says, to he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. In that moment where you're saying, I'm good, I got this thing whooped, The pride of life steps in and he comes in after us. Now we don't have to fear our foe. Because what the Bible tells us is we have the things that Jesus had. We have our heavenly father. Now he said of Jesus, this is my beloved son of whom I'm well pleased. But we have God the father in heaven and Jesus says we can pray to him and say our father who art in heaven. He offers us help. We've been given the Holy Spirit. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We've been given the word of God. This is what Jesus used to beat Satan. Every time Satan came at him, he came back with the scripture. And next week we'll talk about how we can use this sword that God has given us to fight the foe. And and lastly, we have our Savior Jesus Christ. The one that we remember as we come to the communion table now. And as we come to the communion table, we're reminded of what God did to defeat our enemy. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated sin, death, and Satan. And as we come to this table today, we're reminded of how Jesus didn't take the shortcut. He didn't take the easy way out. Instead, he was willing to walk in the painful plan that had been laid before him. You'll remember that another temptation Jesus faced is when he was kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he thought about the coming crucifixion, he knew they were coming to arrest him. He knew what he was about to face. There was such agony, the Scriptures tell us, he was sweating literal drops of blood. And he said to his heavenly Father, Daddy, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he said, not my will, but thy will be done. Because Jesus knew that he had come to die, to gain not just the title of the name above all names, but he had come to gain us, to ransom us, to impute his righteousness to us, to pay that penalty of death that you and I owed for our sins. And he was willing to go to the cross for us. So in a moment, as the elements are passed, you're going to have the opportunity to take a piece of bread representing the bread of life, Jesus Christ, and a cup representing the blood of Jesus. And if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, I invite you, if you're ready to turn from your sins and turn to him to be your Savior, to take those elements and say to God, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've made some mistakes in my life, and I recognize because of that I owe a penalty, a penalty of death. And I thank you for your gift of new life. I accept this gift, your death, in my place. And as you take those elements, what you're doing is becoming a part of the family of God. Because you're saying, I believe you're who you said you are, and I believe you did what you came to do, which was die to cover my sins. And for the rest of us who have come to faith in the past, I want you to use this time to remember his great gift. You see across the front of the table, this do in remembrance of me. And this is the time to say thank you, Jesus, for not taking the shortcut. Thank you, Jesus, for not avoiding the cross. Thank you for dying to save me. So will you pass the elements for us and use this time to confess any sins you have, to prepare your hearts to receive it. You don't have to be a member of Wayside. This table is open to all who are believers in Jesus Christ. Satan wanted Jesus to take a shortcut. He said there's another way to glory. There's another way to do this in what God has outlined. But Jesus knew that was not the case. Jesus is the one who says there's only one way to heaven, and it's through him and what he did. It's why he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He knew that somebody had to pay the penalty of death that was owed for sin. And the only one who could do that was the perfect God and perfect man, the one who had flesh and blood, who could be the sacrifice for our sins. And he willingly went to the cross. He willingly suffered and died for us. The body of Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and me, eat it in remembrance of him. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Again, Jesus knew he had to go to the cross. He had to pay that penalty of death. And he willingly went. He willingly became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said of him, the blood of Jesus, the one who died for us. Drink it in remembrance of him. Join me, please, as we pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Jesus Christ, we thank you that you were willing to not take the shortcut, not grab the glory, not go for the crown without the cross, but you willingly went and died for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for indwelling and empowering us. Thank you for being the one who helps us when we face our foe, Satan. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gift of new and eternal life, And we thank you for the privilege we have to be your messengers of grace. May we be those who go and spread the good news of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.